Good morning. It is so good that you are here at Central Church this morning. We're in the middle of a sermon series that we call Enough. It began three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I guess now, when we talked about Jesus being enough. Through him, in him, we have everything that we need to be joyful, successful, uh, uh, satisfied in this life. Jesus is the one that said it in Mark chapter, chapter 8. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? And how true it is, we all know that you can't take it with you, that you, we've never seen a U-Haul uh, or a hearse, uh, you know, towing a U-Haul to the cemetery. And so Jesus' words make sense. Well, today we're going to be talking about the defining moments of life. And we're asking the question, what do you want to be known for? At the end of your life, what will folks be saying about you? How will your life be characterized? I've given you the, these data before, but, but I think it's good repeating. The biggest regret at the end of your life won't be the things you did that you wish you hadn't done. The biggest regret at the end of your life will be the things you didn't do that you wish you had done. And I base that on the research of a couple of researchers, Tom Gilovich and Vicki Medvik, and in their, their research, they just said that time is the key factor in what we regret. Over the short term, we regret our actions, the thing we did that we wish we hadn't have done. I wish I wouldn't have eaten that triple fudge Sunday. I wish I wouldn't have gotten angry last night. I wish I wouldn't have done this or that. In the, over the short term, we regret our actions. But over the long haul, we tend to regret our inactions, the things we didn't do that we wished we would have done. In fact, the study found that action regrets outweigh inaction regrets in the short term, 53% to 47%. In the short term, again, we regret those things that we just did. But when people look at their lives as a whole, inaction regrets, those things we didn't do that we wish we would have done, outweigh action regrets 84% to 16%. The deepest regrets at the end of our lives will be the risks not taken, the opportunities not seized, the dreams not pursued, the the opportunities to serve in which we we blew off, the, the instances where we could have been generous, but instead we were greedy or selfish. Last Sunday night, I preached on the last sermon, the last, uh, point, the last illustration of the last sermon of Jesus. It's found in Matthew 25. And we started by saying the things that we say at the end of our life, those things generally, we think anyway, are very, very important. If we know that, that we'll never see someone again or, or if we think we may not see them, those last words, final words, are very important. That's why every day uh, when I leave, usually Carla's still sleeping, but usually when I leave, I try to say, you know, uh, goodbye, I love you, whatever, something like that. When we hang up with our boys at the phone, we always say, I love you, you know. We, we don't know. They, they're far away. You never know what will happen tomorrow. And so in the same way, Jesus, in these final words, his final sermon, and the final illustration of a sermon, is telling the disciples something that he really, really wanted them to get. The first point of his sermon was the story of the, of the bridesmaids who, who five were ready for the bridegroom to return and five were not. That's where we get the old uh, Sunday school song, Give Me Oil in My Lamp, Keep It Burning, Burning, Burning. You may remember that song. Five of the bridesmaids had oil, five did not. The bridegroom returned, and the five were left out, and the the other five were were blessed. Jesus' point, be ready. You never know when the bridegroom's coming. The second point in that final sermon was the story of the the parable of the talents. One guy received five talents, one guy two, one guy one, and you remember that story. The five and the two-talent guys, they they went out and doubled their, their money. The one talent guy buried it in the backyard. 
And of course, the, the master returned. What's the point of, of Jesus' story? Not only do, are, do we need to be ready, point number one, point number two, we need to use the gifts, abilities, talents that God has given us for his glory while we're waiting for him to return. And then the final point in that sermon that Jesus gave in Matthew 25 was not only do we need to be ready using our gifts and talents, but the final point is the story about the shepherd who's separating the goats from the sheep. And the goats were the ones who were disappointed. The sheep were the ones that made heaven. And what made the difference between the goat and the sheep? The sheep were using their gifts and talents and abilities for the least of these. They were ready for the master to return. They were using their gifts and talents, not just just for themselves or hoarding it for themselves, but they were using it to bless others. So Jesus' final sermon, the, the final points that he's trying to make for these disciples, really important, was be ready. Use your talents for the least of these. Be generous, in other words, with your talents, treasures, with the least of these. Don't have regrets at the end of your life, but spend your life in kingdom work. Okay, fast forward to the book of Acts. The book of Acts gives us the journeys of Paul, the missionary journeys of Paul. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul is on his third of what will be four missionary journeys. On this trip, Paul is making his way to Jerusalem, but he makes a stop in a town called Miletus, a port city. And Miletus wasn't all that far from Ephesus, and and Paul wanted to see the Ephesian elders. Paul had spent three years with these people, he really wanted, Ephesus was an important city and he really wanted the church to be established there. So he spent three years there trying to establish the church. And so he stops up in Miletus and he sends word to, the, to the, the, the elders of the Ephesian church and said, why don't you come? I've got one last thing to tell you. And Paul is thinking he'll never see these people again. And he never does. And so he had one important message that he wanted to give them one more time to encourage them, to inspire them. These are his last words. In Acts 20, this is what it says, the Bible says, verse 35, in everything I did, Paul is talking, in everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work that we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept and they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was a statement that they would never see his face again. So the last message that Paul has for these people that he deeply, deeply loves is really the same message of Jesus' last sermon to the disciples whom he deeply, deeply loved. And the message of Paul was, listen, boys, you gotta get this. It's better to give than to receive. Be givers, not takers. It shouldn't surprise us, really, that that's the last message that Paul gives to the Ephesians and the last message that Jesus gives to the disciples in a sermon Because it really wasn't a new concept, it's an old concept. God has always called his followers to be generous and to be givers. Abraham was the first person that is described as as giving a tithe. Abraham returned from a battle and and gave a tithe to Melchizedek, the, the, the priest, in Genesis 14. It was Abraham's grandson, Jacob, in Genesis 28, who made this covenant with God. He said, if God will be with me, And will watch over me on this journey I am taking. And will give me food to eat and clothes to wear. So that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. It's giving a tithe. When Moses was was putting down the law, he encoded this. Saying that that followers of, of God would give their first fruits. That would be the first gift. The tenth would be their first gift. And if you were to do a study of a historical study of the Bible, all 1,600 years that span the 
the, 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 the years that the Bible was written and did a study on worship in the Bible, the one thing you would see, the primary pet way that people worshiped was not singing hymns, was not passing of the peace, and the introvert said amen. It was not, it was not uh, even listening to a great sermon. Pat, 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 that wasn't it. No, the way, the predominantly way that people worshiped was to build an altar and to offer God their first fruits of their labor. And that way they were expressing gratitude, devotion, honor to God. So the grain or the animal sacrificed on that altar and the aroma would fill the air. Now, now they did that not because God liked the smell of burnt grain or barbecue. That's not why they did it. Rather, God saw that the, the people were giving their first fruits, their gift. They expressed love and faith and a willingness to honor God and to please God. And that always moved God's heart. Still does. Jesus' words, it's better to give than receive. See, God didn't need those animal sacrifices. Are you kidding me? He didn't need the grain sacrifices. And in and, and the Psalms, we're told the earth is the Lord and everything in it. God owns it all. He didn't need that stuff. No, God needed our honor, our praise, our thanks. He wants us to recognize who he, him for who he is. So Paul, instructing these Ephesian leaders, who he's never going to see again, says, listen, boys, it's better to give than receive. I think Paul knew the temptations that can, can creep into a believer's heart. The temptation to, to grip tightly instead of letting go. The temptation to hoard rather than to give. There's really two voices that can tempt us. The, the first voice is fear. If I give, you know, there, won't, there might not be enough for me. We're afraid to be generous because we're afraid of what might happen in the future. We don't know what's going to happen. And so if I give, I may, I may, I may come up a little short. And really, the, the problem with that type of thinking is a misplaced sense of security. You see, my security is not based on what's in my 401k or in my bank account. My security is solely based on Jesus Christ. And I can have the biggest 401k in the world, but if I don't have Jesus, I don't have a thing. The second, the second voice that can sneak in and tempt us away from generosity is simply, is simply we talked about it last week really a lot, is simply Greed. Maybe the word isn't greed. Maybe we called it last week the pursuit of, of happiness. If I give, I won't have enough to do all the things I want to do. I won't have all the things that, I, 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 that will make me happy. See, our culture teaches us that abundance of possessions is the road to happiness. And we talked about last week that our ultimate happiness is not found in something that we can buy at Macy's or in an auto dealership or any place else. Our ultimate happiness, our uh, deep down blessedness and joy, that again only comes from Jesus. And so Paul is telling these Ephesians the same message that Jesus was telling the disciples in his last sermon. It's better to give than receive. It's better to think of others than yourself. I think the early Christians got this. Those early believers that, that, that Luke describes in Acts chapter 2 were living that out. They understood that their life was not meant to be lone rangers, that they were not meant to be, you know, rugged individualists. It wasn't, that wasn't the goal. But rather that their life was to be shared. In Acts chapter 2, Luke writes, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. 
They worshiped together in the temple each day and met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoyed the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. That sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? I mean, they're just enjoying life together, Luke says, with great joy and generosity. When we're experiencing great joy, that, those two things, joy and generosity, go hand in hand. I have never met an unhappy, generous person. They just don't go together. And I don't know exactly what great joy and generosity means as it relates to, to the, the early believers having their meals together, but I think it meant there was a lot of laughter around the table and a lot of good casseroles being brought. I think that's what, what joy and generosity was getting. The people were, they were getting along. That's why the Bible says that they were enjoying the goodwill of all the people. When a need arose, they took care of it. When somebody was in a tough place, they helped them out. There was no credit in those days, no Visa, no MasterCard, no Apple Pay, nothing like that. But when a need came up, they just pooled their resources and helped one another. They were family. They weren't biological family, but it was deeper than that. They were family in Jesus Christ. And just like when when maybe your family has a family member that, that comes up a little short or is in a tough spot, you might even sacrifice to help them. These early believers were sacrificing to help their their brothers and sisters. They were family. And that's why the big deal was such a big deal with Ananias and Sapphira a couple chapters down the road from Acts chapter 2. You remember their story. They got blasted. Why? What happened? They sold their property. They came in, said it was all the money they received from that uh, 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 real estate deal. But it wasn't. They were just trying to puff themselves up. They were trying to get the accolades of the crowd. They were trying to get people to think, ooh, look at Ananias and Sapphira. They're some people. And of course, we know that they were lying. Not the first, it was the first time somebody lied in church, I guess. Not the last, sorry to say. The lesson learned is that, that God won't be mocked. And the kingdom of God should be based on sharing our lives. Ananias and Sapphira were thinking of themselves. How they looked among the rest of the crowd. They were only giving the appearance of generosity. I've known people who've done that. They, they would give, you know, whenever it was like a public thing. They would only give when it was, when it was known by others. You know, Yahoo, look at me, I'm really giving now. And I think the Lord says, all right, great, that's your reward. That cheers of people right now. The early church were all about taking care of their brothers and sisters. Can I tell you, I wish, that was, I wish that would describe us. When I was a kid growing up in the Elmwood Church of the Nazarene in Westland, Michigan, church isn't even there anymore, it's a doctor's office now, but we called people brother and sister. I don't know, I don't know you know, we used to do that. Maybe you did that around here, I don't know. But there was Brother Kip and Brother Bond and Sister Van Dyne and Aunt Myrtle. She wasn't my aunt, but that's what we called her. It was, it was a way, and maybe, maybe we've gotten away from it. Maybe it's, you know, not sophisticated these days, or maybe it's old-fashioned, I don't know. But we treated each other like family. And so we would pick up Sister Davis, <laughs> When I was just learning how to drive, my, I just got my license. I'm a terrible driver now. I was really bad at 16. And, and they were having a board meeting or something. And so my dad asked me to take Sister Davis home in the car. And that was a wild ride. Sister Davis never would ride with me again. I don't know why I just told you that, but it just came to my head. We were brothers and sisters. The one thing I knew that Sister Davis was praying for me. And, 
And when I was in eighth grade shop and was, you know, all thumbs, Brother Bond helped me make my little eighth grade project. And when I need a little bit of money, Sister Buckley, who always called me Freddie instead of Rob, Fred's my brother, <laughs> Sister Buckley, she would say, well, you just send Freddie over and he can mow my grass. I knew it was me, he wasn't my brother. I guess, I guess what I'm saying is 40 years, 45 years later, I'm saying I wish that would be us. That's my desire for this place. Oh, we don't have to call each other brother and sister. Don't start calling Carla Aunt Carla. That would be weird. But I wish we could be family. Where our seniors and our children and our teenagers and our moms and our dads and our singles were doing life together. That's what tonight's event, Growing Together at 5 o'clock, is all about. Here's your commercial. It's saying we want to be a church where everyone holds, is valuable from our youngest baby in the nursery. I don't think Vivian is the oldest folk in our church, but, but she's getting close at 94, praise the Lord. But we want everyone from 94 to four months and beyond four days to know that they're valuable, that they're important, that it doesn't matter that, 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 that we love each other, that we need each other. Doesn't matter what your background is. Doesn't matter if you're old or young, black or white, from a good background, from a rough background, but we all find our unity, our oneness in Christ Jesus, being the caring, loving, generous community that God has created us to be. It's what those great theologians of the 80s, Sister Sledge, talked about. You know, we are family, all my brothers and sisters in me. I would sing it for you. I do have a little bit of Motown in me, but you don't want to hear it. See, those first followers of Jesus figured this out. Like family, they were willing to share. They were worshiping together and hanging out together and living life together. Now, let me offer this quick disclaimer. It may be that some of you have come from bad families where you, you think, well, your pastor's talking about the church being a family, not like my family. And I get that. Some of your families were rough. And you, you think back on your family and it's a, one of abuse or... or or violence, or trouble. That's not what we're talking. We're talking about a family when, you, when we gather together, that you're home, that you're safe, that you're cared for, that you know that people love you and you love them. See, that's our goal through all of this. I'm convinced that when we are that type of family, warm, we want that to characterize our church, that we are a warm body. When people come in, it's just like, I'm at home there. See, I don't think it was a coincidence that Luke tells us in, in chapter 2, the Lord was adding to their fellowship each day. That was, that's compelling. When people love one another, when they care for one another, when they're there for one another, when they, when they, when they pray with each other and laugh with each other, when they're there, that's compelling because the world sees it. And they say, man, that, that's what, those Christians, those people at Flint Central, they got something. I don't know what's going on, but they got something. See, those early believers, they, they loved one another. They cared for one another. They were generous, and it showed. The world does watch how Christians act and respond. The world does watch how Christians behave online or in person. And we want them to say, there's something different about those folks. See, I wish that's what folks would be saying about us that we share our lives, 
See, the Bible, the Bible is constantly building on the point that God loves cheerful givers, that it's better to give than receive, that, that we need to share with each other, that we, we, we can't get so wrapped up in the things of this old world that we forget whose we are and where we are and what we're on this earth to do. Proverbs 22.9 says, The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. How true that is. It's the same, we, we, you hear me, we talk about this all the time. We go, say, like to Panama, and there's room on the, next, on the June trip, not the next trip, but the June trip, and we'd love for you to go. And you think, well, all right, I'm going to go, and I'm going to bless the Panamanian people. When you get down, you'll see. You'll see what happens. They'll bless you. The Panamanians will bless you way more than you bless them. What happens? It's, it's because as we're being generous, God blesses us. Proverbs 11 says, one person is generous and yet grows more wealthy. Another withholds more than he should and comes to poverty. That doesn't make sense. That's not the way the world's supposed to work. If you're giving away, you shouldn't be getting back. If you're, if you're hoarding on, you should have what you have. But that's not what Proverbs 11 says. A generous person will be enriched, and the one who provides water for others will himself be satisfied. Now, I'm not saying you give, 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 and God's gonna, you know, you're going to hit the jackpot tomorrow. Don't be, hear that. But do hear this. God blesses the cheerful giver. God is faithful. And if you share your, your blessings, God honors that. The apostle Paul knew that. He told Timothy, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. That's the point. Be generous and willing to share. God blesses that. We had this huge error at my last church. Um, it was a typographical error, but it was a doozy. It was probably, it would go down in the typographical error hall of fame if there was such a thing we had tithe envelopes little envelopes in the pews like what we have here and at the top of the little tithe envelope you know that was where you if folks wanted to give cash or whatever and wanted to get credit from the irs and god then they would you know put their envelope their money in the envelope well the top of that envelope was a paraphrase from malachi 310 that says something like the windows of heaven are open from our giving something like that and and, and so, so that was, you know, I guess to inspire people instead of putting in $2 to really put in their tithe. And so that, you know, the windows of heaven would be open. Well, that's all well and good. And, and, and Malachi 3.10 is a great verse. And I love that verse. And I've used it and I preached on it. I'll read it in a minute. Um, but, but we didn't have Malachi 3.10. We had the windows of heaven are open. But then we had Malachi 3.14. Malachi 3.14 is very, very different from Malachi 3.10. In fact, Malachi 3.14 is probably the absolute worst verse that you would want on a tithe envelope in the entire Bible. Malachi 3.14 says this, you have said, what's the use of serving God? What have we gained by obeying his commands or trying to show the Lord heaven's armies that we are sorry for our sins? Ah! That's what it's, I mean, it didn't, we didn't have that written out, but we had the, you know, the address. Windows of heaven are open, Malachi 3.14. So they'd go to Malachi 3.14 and find the absolute worst verse of all time. You know, Malachi's saying, these are, what gener- or these are what greedy people are saying. These are what people who aren't givers are saying. Ah, we had to quickly change that. Because Malachi 3.10 is the verse we wanted to emphasize. Where the Bible says, bring the, all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't even have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Do you know Malachi 3.10 
is the only verse in the entire Bible where God says, put me to the test on this. Test me regarding this. Test me regarding your generosity. See what happens when you open up your hands and, and, and take your, your heavy grip off of those things. When you put me first in your finances, see what happens. See, you won't be disappointed, the Bible says, because God loves a cheerful giver. Paul says it's better, or, or Jesus said it's better to, 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 to give than receive. Peter Marshall was the chaplain of the U.S. Senate for many, many years. And a friend of his came to him who had grown to be very, very wealthy back, I mean, this was several years ago. And he, and he came to, to Peter Marshall and says, I've got a problem. He said, I used to tithe regularly. He goes, but now, now I'm earning over $500,000 a year. And this is, again, several years ago, so $500,000 is a lot of money. It's a lot of money now. And he said, so I can't, I can't, he said, now if I were to tithe, it's $50,000. He said, I can't afford to, to tithe $50,000. So Marshall kind of thought about the wealthy man's dilemma, gave no advice. And he simply said, oh, I certainly see your problem. He said, maybe we should pray about it. The guy goes, yeah, 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 let's, let's pray about it. And so Peter Marshall bowed his head and, and started to pray. And this is what he said, oh, dear God, I pray that you would reduce this man's salary to the place where he can afford to tithe. I'm not sure that's exactly what the man wanted him to pray. 2017, Forbes magazine said that there were 2,043 billionaires in the world. 2017, there's probably more now. But in 2017, 2,043 billionaires. That was double what it was in 2007. But the article went on to say that of those 2,043, they give just a tiny, 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 teeny, tiny little bit uh, uh, to, to others, to charity. Nowhere's near a tithe. And you think, well, how can you be a billionaire and give so little? If, 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 if what you're thinking is, well, I, I'm afraid that I won't have enough to survive, they've got billions, right? And the truth is, regardless of your income, each of us are faced with a question. How much is enough? What am I doing with the blessings of God? Jesus put it this way. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. From the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. You've heard me say this before, but really our offerings, our tithes, are a tangible sign of devotion to God. I don't know how else to look at it. That's what, how the Old Testament looks at it. That's how the New Testament looks at it. It's true today. They are an expression of our devotion and our praise and our worship. A demonstration of who's first in our life, what's first in our life. Don't tell me that God is first in your life if you don't give to his kingdom. It just, it, it just doesn't work that way. Help us to live a life of gratitude. Help us to be generous. Help us to share with one another, to express our worship to you through the way that we treat others. In Jesus' name, amen.